I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 16th. This episode is brought to you by Power Integrations, Innovation in Power Conversion. For decades, the semiconductor industry has been an engine for incredible technological innovation and nonstop economic growth. Even during a trade war and a simultaneous pandemic that resulted in so many of the other sectors of the economy being severely curtailed, the semiconductor industry thrived beyond expectation. For decades, EE Times has trained a magnifying glass on the semiconductor industry, figuratively speaking. We've provided details about every major innovation in the area, and a few minor ones as well. We've explored the ramifications of hundreds of mergers and acquisitions, and we've reported on the results of all this activity. One thing we don't do quite as often is set our magnifying glass down and take a look at the industry as a whole. That's what we're going to talk about today. Today, the big picture, with industry veteran and Tirius Research Analyst, Jim McGregor. Before we get to that, here on the weekly briefing, we've got some stuff to brief you about from last week. One of the Trump administration's goals with its trade war was to weaken China's ability to produce its own semiconductors. Some of China's semiconductor companies were already wobbly, and last week the country took another hit on that front. Tsinghua Unigroup is the holding company for two prominent Chinese chip companies, Yangtze Memory Technologies and Unisoc. Creditors forced Tsinghua to acknowledge that its debts far exceed its assets. Read our story from Alan Patterson on Tsinghua's plan going forward. We've also posted a new episode of our Power Up podcast, this one taking a look at hydrogen power. The world is getting serious about decarbonization programs to alleviate global warming. One way to do that is to adopt clean energy sources, and hydrogen power is becoming one of the more promising alternative energy options. In the latest Power Up podcast, EE Times and Power Electronics News Editor Maurizio De Paolo Emilio talks about hydrogen power with the manager of a testbed in Sweden for sustainable technologies and with the chief marketing officer of Powerbox, a Swedish company that is providing hydrogen power solutions. We've also got a story about open source software in the power grid, one about designing with toxic materials, or more to the point, how not to design with toxic materials, and another about how SoftBank in Japan plans to start offering international communication services from different constellations of satellites, as well as from an enormous solar-powered flying wing. For all of these stories and more industry news and analysis, visit our website at eetimes.com. If you're on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left and you'll see links to all of these stories we mentioned today. We've dedicated several of these podcasts to specific semiconductor solutions. We've talked about programmable devices and processors optimized for data centers and gallium nitride ICs for power applications. We've also had podcasts looking at the reasons behind a particular merger or acquisition, often focusing on the possible advantages for either of the two companies involved. For example, we've talked about NVIDIA's proposal to buy ARM Holdings and AMD's intention to purchase Xilinx. Both of those deals are still in progress. This episode is not going to be one of those episodes. 
Today, we're going to take a step back and look at the industry as a whole and try to figure out not only where the whole thing is going, but where it might be taking all of us. One of the most glamorous parts of the semiconductor industry has always been the logic segment. These are the processors that constitute the brains of one of the most visible and transforming technological innovations in history, the computer. Since the 1980s, Intel has dominated the logic market with its microprocessors, or MPUs. Right about that same time, AMD solidified its position as a solid alternative to Intel. In recent years, however, AMD has begun to challenge Intel in terms of technological prowess. Meanwhile, many other products other than computers developed a need for advanced logic, a prominent example of the smartphone. This is an end market where ARM has emerged as a technology leader, with a novel strategy of licensing its processor cores to other companies. ARM has expanded its product line, scaling up to where its designs have become competitive with Intel's and AMD's, creating successes for its licensees. While all that was happening, NVIDIA was developing expertise in graphics processors, or GPUs, devices that have become increasingly more useful and therefore have found increasingly more uses. With its success in GPUs, NVIDIA put itself in a position to acquire ARM. For quite some time, Intel was the biggest fish in the most glamorous segment of the semiconductor market, with AMD swimming close behind in its wake. But in just the last few years, it seems that technological and business trends have interacted to change the competitive landscape. Assuming NVIDIA's acquisition of ARM is approved, that will set up a trio of competitors that will be on more or less equal footing. Intel, AMD, and the combined NVIDIA and ARM. Today we'll be talking with Jim McGregor, a co-founder of Curious Research. Jim's a frequent guest. He's worked for Intel, Motorola, on semiconductor and STM microelectronics, just to name a few. And let me tell you, Jim has seen things. My first question to Jim was if he agreed that Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA have remade the competitive landscape in the semiconductor business. Are they the new big three? And do any other rivals merit being considered? Here's Jim. Definitely in terms of computing solutions. I mean, when you start thinking about uh, the personal computer and, you know, everything from the edge going in, uh, if it's going to require lots of computing horsepower, uh, those are definitely the big three, but I don't think the only ones, because you mm -hmm. have to start thinking about uh, how ARM plays in here. I mean, now we have always connected PCs, so now you've got uh, Snapdragon processors from Qualcomm, plus you could have Exynos or um, any of the other solutions from MediaTek, Samsung, Huawei, blah, blah, blah. You know, as we see this convergence of computing, connectivity, data, and intelligence, I think any of these major players, and some of them are semiconductor companies, some of them are system companies, some of them are both, are mm -hmm. all in some form of cooperation. Uh, sometimes they cooperate, sometimes they compete. They're all trying to uh, to compete or cooperate <laughs> with uh, with each other, uh, going for some of the same applications. There are there are a couple of newer applications, five um, G, automotive, but for the most part, um, uh, they're they're all going head to head for. PCs, laptops, servers, and for the prestige, perhaps, the, the high-performance compute segment. 
No, I would agree. Um, and whether you're talking about something that fits in your pocket like a smartphone, you're talking about servers in the cloud. Um, we're finally realizing, I think, for the first time that the world of intelligence and the world of electronics is only so big. And we don't have a lot of these green-filled opportunities we had, you know, especially like when the smartphone came along. You know, nobody could have expected we would have had a device that would sell billions of units a year, um, every year. Uh, but we don't have a lot of those. And as a lot as the market builds out throughout, you know, emerging markets and everything else, we're realizing that we're really one world, one ecosystem. So when you see a new opportunity uh, tick up. You know, that's a new opportunity for everyone, you know, whether you're a traditional incumbent in that market. You mentioned automotive. So you've got Renaissance, NXP, um, microchip, ST, microelectronics, everything else. But, you know, as we start going towards autonomous vehicles, you've got Intel, you've got Samsung, you've got Qualcomm, you've got NVIDIA. You know, everyone's trying to expand their TAM. And the only way you can do that is expand new markets. We're seeing the same thing in communications with open RAN systems. You know, as, mm -hmm. as it became evident that you could use off-the-shelf systems to create a, a communications network, everyone's going to hop in on the boat, you know. Uh, I don't think I've heard of a single server chip or application being announced lately that doesn't mention ORAN somewhere in the announcement. So it is it yeah. is interesting that this competition is definitely building up. And matter of fact, it's not just semiconductors, and I want to reiterate that. You know, you've got... Uh, systems uh, companies, you've got you've got the whole value chain is kind of collapsing and competing against itself. Automotive is a great example. You've got some of the tier one technology companies designing their own cars because they don't know if they're going to be using the next generation autonomous vehicles. So it's it's really uh, it's interesting because as all these opportunities arise, we're realizing that everyone sooner or later is in competition with each other too. I'm fascinated by how um, as the as the company versus company uh, dynamic plays out, um, the technology um, tends to converge and diverge in an, in a curious way. Um, everybody uh, sort of uh, begins to realize, oh, we can we can. Um, standardized on an ARM architecture, and you have multiple companies doing that, and that's great for a while. And then all of a sudden, a workload comes up where a Facebook decides we we need a specialized chip and we'll do it ourselves. Let me ask you about that dynamic. What's I mean, as the 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 standard off the shelf versus a a roll your own. You know, it's interesting because the chips, what we call systems on chips now, because they are complete mm -hmm. systems, um, are more complex than we've ever seen in the world. Matter of fact, they push the boundaries of what you can do on a single chip. And a lot of times they're going to multiple chips on a module now through mm -hmm. th uh, 2.5D and 3D packaging technology. However, it's never been easier. There's never been an easier time to build your own chip than now. And part of that is the evolution of Moore's Law, where we've got this fantastic manufacturing technology and tools and everything built up. Part of it is this whole ecosystem of IP that's available 
through companies like Synopsis and Cadence and Arm, uh, Risk Five, mm-hmm. Sci Five, you know, on and on and on, where you can actually combine different solutions to to really optimize around your workload. Um, and you know, on one aspect, Moore's law has enabled this. On the other aspect, Moore's law is limiting it. You know, we're now getting to a point where it's not advancing as fast as it used to be. So you have to optimize around the design, the architecture, if you want to get maximum performance and maximum power efficiency out of it. So yeah, a lot of times these companies are either looking to partners like an Intel or a Qualcomm or a Samsung or whatever, saying, listen, I need customized chips that, you know, cut out this stuff and do this stuff. Um, Or they're doing their own, you know, like a Google and a Facebook where they're like, okay, well, we're not really seeing what we want in the market. So we're going to try it ourselves. And in a lot of cases, they're doing it very success- successfully. So it's um, it's one of those areas where, once again, the market is kind of collapsing. And uh, the good thing is, is, you know, we've seen so much so many mergers and acquisitions through these waves of acquisitions we've seen, especially over the past decade in semiconductors. Yeah that a lot of these companies have built up these massive pools of IP. And a lot of times they have cross-licensing agreements between companies. So we're seeing this ability for so much uh, performance, so much efficiency through a semiconductor, but we're also seeing so much competition because everyone's realizing, well, I could do this or I could do this or uh, a partner could help me do this. Um, The options are almost limitless almost limitless, even though the number of companies has shrunk dramatically. Um, in the past, the phenomenon of, uh, of, of being able to do your own, um, it was the economics suggested that if you're able to make half a million or, or excuse me, 500 million chips, for a smartphone and they're all the same chip, your manufacturing costs go down. Um, These days, now the phenomenon you were just talking about a moment ago was since everybody can do almost the same thing, almost as well as everybody else, you want to optimize for a workload, but then you're atomizing the, the, uh, the end market. You're no longer talking about 500 million of something for smartphones you might be talking about 50 million do the do the economics still work out they actually do and it's funny because this is one of the reasons why we're seeing this all this um focus on this chip shortage right now is because unless you're on that ultimate ultimate bleeding edge for high-end servers or pcs or smartphones there's so much technology out there. There's multiple. I mean, matter of fact, if you, it, it, we, we often think of the man, semiconductor manufacturing technologies, planar, the 2D transistor, and FinFET, 3D transistor, mm-hmm. and eventually going towards uh, gate all around technology. But it's really much more than that. When you think about the fact that you can use different materials, you can have uh, uh, such as fully depleted silicon on insulator technology, all these different things. There's so much technology out there um, that if you don't have to be in that bleeding edge, especially if you're focused on efficiency and not raw performance, um, mm-hmm. there are so many options available to you. In a lot of cases, the bleeding edge isn't ideal for you. Uh, a great example, 
Um, I used when I worked for ST and we introduced the touch chip, the fingerprint sensor. Um, it was great. We had a lot of problems with ESD and electrostatic discharge and everything else. But one of the things we realized was uh, you get to a point where shrinking that sensor down anymore doesn't make sense. Because you there's needed no, a certain no size. You, you, you've, hit, you've hit all, you've eked out all the performance and, and you're going to get out of it, right? It, well, not just performance, but you need a certain size to be able to swipe somebody's finger. <laughs> so oh, right. you don't want to make it too <laughs> <Okay>. small. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's some situations where making it smaller doesn't help you. Matter of fact, if you've ever seen some of the smallest chips that NXP makes, um, this is actually prior to the NXP acquisition of Freescale. Freescale used to have this little card they handed out, and it had their smallest microcontroller, and it was it fit on the tip of a pencil, but it actually contained like six or seven microcontrollers on there just because they couldn't cut the die down to a single microcontroller, and that was using an older process technology. <laughs> so that is a good example where not everything requires the bleeding edge, especially if you're using innovative packaging technology to stack or combine right. it into a single module. You know, a lot of times older technology is is uh, going to be more efficient, more cost effective to your point about economics. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a lot of people have realized that, you know, that's all of a sudden when our industry just kept going throughout COVID and we're still ramping and still coming up with new ideas and new solutions like an, like a car. Uh, even though autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles are going to take these real high-end, you know, control and, and AI chips, there's still a lot of chips throughout the car. Matter of fact, the number of chips is still increasing with all the different systems and intelligence and sensors that you need to be able to make an autonomous vehicle that it's driving up overall demand for these older process technologies because you don't need or want the latest process technology. It's not even cost-effective a lot of cases. So yeah, it's the economics do make sense in a lot of cases. Matter of fact, a great example, look at Global Foundries. Global Foundries finally said, you know, guys, you know, we're chasing our tail, trying to make money on the latest process note, investing, you know, billions upon billions of dollars. We're going to focus on more unique specialized process technologies. So, I mean, like one of their customers they announced this uh, this year was SciQuantum, which is a company trying to do mm-hmm. quantum computers, digital-based quantum, quantum computers. Um, not to mention they're also doing uh, RF stuff for uh, 5G and right. everything else. These are all specialized technologies that, you know, are very unique right now. They may become huge in the future, you know, like when, especially when we think of quantum computing, if you need those Really, uh, if we ever get to the point where you need a lot of chips that can be manufactured and uh, run at these really, really cold temperatures or almost absolute zero right. temperature. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is they found out that there's so many other opportunities out there and the mass volume isn't at the bleeding edge anymore. You know, you think of a couple billion chips for a smartphone, think of multiple billions of chips for automotive. Matter of fact, Here's a stat for you. Even before they were, this was several years ago, when right before uh, Freescale was acquired by NXP, um, I remember somebody asking uh, them how important or, or, or why is the automotive market so important? And the Freescale staff looked at them and said, do you realize we ship a million chips in automotive every single day? <laughs> well, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, but a million chips just from one company shipping in automotive every single day. I mean, it is phenomenal when you think about it. So, yeah, the demand is there. The economies are there. 
And the technology, the breadth of the technology when we think of semiconductor manufacturing is a lot bigger than what we really grasp when you just talk about a simple process node. It's fascinating, too, how, again, we talk about maybe a specializing for a workload, but um, the, the generic, I mean, from the, from the highest level, technologies seem to be converging. Um, you mentioned ORAN. You can do ORAN with an off-the-shelf server and maybe an optimized chip, maybe something that's also off-the-shelf. Uh, cars, automobiles had a lot of very specialized um, um, semiconductors and certainly going forward still will. But now we're talking about turning it into an Ethernet network instead of this this specialized one-off thing that's only applicable to to the automotive so uh, so it seem I mean it, it seems to me that that uh, uh, things converge that way as well and in that phenomenon has some effect on on the economics and the competition as well too right it is true you know I, I it's funny because I hesitate to even call like the GPUs we use in PCs, especially the ones from NVIDIA, I hate to, I, I hesitate to even call them GPUs anymore. <laughs> when you think about mm, they've got yeah. specialized tensor cores in there just for handling AI. And, you know, and they actually use those in graphics processing with their DLSS technology. You know, is that really a graphics processor anymore? <laughs> so it's right, when you right. can use it for everything else. And, the, the, and quite honestly, when it comes to AI, which is definitely one of the key drivers in our industry going forward forever for the foreseeable future, um, you can run an AI workload, uh, a neural network workload on pretty much any type of logic processing, whether it's a CPU, a GPU, a DSP, a custom processor, whatever. You can run it. It's just how efficiently. And it depends on, you know, how big is the data set? What's it trying to do? Is it worth having a separate block or a separate chip? But yeah, and everyone's looking at that of what do I actually, okay, say I just want to do keyword recognition. I'm going to recognize a dozen words. Do I really need a huge mm -hmm. processor? Can I just use maybe an ARM core, ARM CPU core to do that? Or am I better off using an ARM neural network core to do that? And there's a lot of options to use. And they can borrow not just the hardware technology, but they can borrow the software technology and even some of the models from other industries. You know, just because I'm building this for, let's say, um, a home entertainment device, doesn't mean I couldn't borrow some of that same technology that was used in PCs or used in medical systems or used in all these different types of app security applications. You know, there's a lot of reuse and a lot of knowledge that a sharing of knowledge across those different boundaries. So you've got your classic microprocessor, you've got your graphics processor, and now you've got DPUs. And I wanted to ask you about how you, you, the, the relationship between microprocessors, GPUs, and deep, what are DPUs and how do they fit into that? You know, it's interesting because um, what you're really describing here is our move towards accelerated processing. So you're still uh -huh. using a host processor. Um, and that processor may be a primary function. It may be just a management function. But then you've also got accelerators. Um, in the case of like the uh, a GPU, in a lot of these cases, uh, like you mentioned, the NVIDIA supercomputers, where they're working with both, 
AMD, Intel, and they're working on their own host processor. Uh, but right. the main focus is on that GPU for acceleration processing. Um, uh, other cases, you've got accelerators to offload stuff from those processors. Um, that's really what the DPU is. Uh, the best way to mm -hmm. describe it's an infrastructure processor or it's a network processor on steroids if you want to go back 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's My understanding of it was that it's sort of like a it, – it's, it's – it's, um, putting some measure of intelligence in the the network connections themselves. You're doing a little bit of processing as you're moving data from point A to point B, right? Well, exactly. It's, you know, we always think of our, uh, accelerating workloads. And we usually think of the workloads mm -hmm. that we're running on the computer. But what about the workloads that are running in the computer? And that's essentially what they're doing is they're saying, okay, the host processor is doing everything from helping run that workload, whether it's on the CPU or offloaded mm -hmm. to a GPU, FPGA, you know, uh, TPU, whatever. Um, but there's a lot of other things that have to be done in terms of the communication, in terms of the security, in terms of all mm -hmm. the network management, all this stuff. And those are things that are taking additional resources away from the host processor. So why don't we accelerate the workload within the computer? And they're pulling those functions out and saying, okay, it would be more efficient and higher performance if we have a dedicated chip that just accelerates those management functions or those overhead functions inside a server. That's essentially what a DPU is. It's it's an accelerator inside the computing platform. <laughs> so cool. It is. Um, and and it, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's and that plays into a little bit. Uh, uh, it, we're we're back to that part of the conversation where we're talking about you had these big systems on chips that were getting so complex, you can take some of that stuff off the SOC and put them into a different slice of silicon and still put them inside of a module, you know, or, or you know, chipset or multi-chip module or yeah, right. Well, and a, a good way to think about this, and you know, I kind of expanded your initial argument away from just AMD, Intel, and and uh, um, NVIDIA right, to right. include companies like um, Qualcomm, Samsung, MediaTek, stuff like that, because that's essentially what they've had to do in smartphones is accelerate each mm -hmm. individual function. So when you talk about if you, if you expand your compute horizon just from raw, you know, processing single workloads to um, actually doing heterogeneous computing, these mobile processors, especially like the Snapdragon from Qualcomm, is the most heterogeneous processing solution I've ever seen, where it's got all these different accelerators for all different specialized functions, and they all work seamlessly together. I mean, imagine trying to program this and saying, okay, well, I could run it here, I could run it here, I could run it here, I could run it. I mean, all these different types of accelerators. <laughs> I mean, they talk about their AI engine, and it's all kinds of different cores. <laughs> it's like, it is, it is a mind-numbing task to think about, but... That's essentially what we're in. It's really accelerated computing. And there's always this balance of, do you run it in software uh, through the host processor? Or do you run it through a specialized function? And increasingly, especially as we're facing issues with Moore's Law, it's better to have some of those specialized functions as long as you can have an overall efficient solution. Yeah. And some of those functions... Again, don't have to be bleeding edge, right? No. You you can kind of control costs by pulling a function out uh, that doesn't need to be bleeding edge, 
manufacturing at a lower cost and and still getting not, not getting the same performance, prop usually getting better performance, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, AMD really went out on a cliff when they came up with their Zen architecture and said, you know, guys, we looked at this and we're going with the multi-chip module. We just don't think that putting it on a monolithic die makes sense anymore. And that was huge because there are trade-offs. You have to think about latency. It was between, controversial. It was. It was. You have to think about latency in between chips and um, you know interconnectivity, not to mention testing multiple chips, testing them all together and all this stuff. So there's, there's anything from the design to the programming to the manufacturing that has to go into that. But it was a brilliant decision. Matter of fact, even Intel kind of admitted that and is kind of is going that direction. Um, mm-hmm. NVIDIA has even admitted that they're kind of maxing out what they can do on a monolithic die through their huge die. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, you get to a point where even as a chip, you have to think of this as a complete system. Let's face it, the SOCs we're working with today are supercomputers on a chip, not just systems on a chip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what about this phenomenon that I haven't asked about? Where, where, you know, where are we, what, where are we now? Where, where are we going? Where can we go from where we are now? You know, it's interesting because we've gone for, when you think back to the seventies, so we're essentially 50 years, um, of evolution. I can remember that far back, but I'm not going to admit it. <laughs> Either am I. I was pretty young then. I was only three years old. <laughs> but um, you think about that, you know, we've really evolved through silicon technology um, and Moore's Law over that entire time, along with everything else. Mm-hmm. It's not just hardware, but software and everything that we've done. You know, deep learning, you could argue, over the past three or four years has been monumental to our industry. But... <laughs> When you think about it, you know, there's comes a time and, you know, I can, I remember three times that Gordon Moore predicted the end of his own uh, law. And I think this last time he was probably right. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it, we're going to get to a point where we lean, we need a revolutionary change. And I think that the industry, especially the industry leaders are looking at that. You know, we're looking at different types of uh, technology in terms of processing technology, memory technology, like phase change memory. We're looking at quantum computing. We're looking at all these different things that, and I don't think that everything changes overnight because I think you still, silicon technology, there's billions upon billions upon billions of dollars invested in that that have uh, that have really developed it over time. But we're getting to a point where, and we're enhancing it through uh, packaging technology now. It's kind of become a fourth mm-hmm. pillar of innovation for the semiconductor industry. But eventually, you know, we're getting to a point where we have to start looking at more exotic, um, I should say, I say exotic, but just newer solutions, different solutions, you know, that take us mm-hmm. on a different path and, you know, keep those economies of scale going. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we're going to find them, you know, uh, there, there's still going to be a lot of cases, you know, you talk to some of the people in the quantum community and they're still admittedly, you know, we're not going to reach, uh, you know, a million qubits for another decade. It's still going it's still a decade away at least, but we are going to get there. And that's the interesting part um, that just as with the rate of data and intelligence and everything else keeps growing and growing and growing. So too is the technology. It's it's evolving, and we're we're look we're pulling things out of the closet. Some technologies we looked at, you know, 20, 30 years ago. When you think about some of the newer startups on AI, you know, they're mm-hmm. looking at all kinds of different ways of doing it. Whether it's optical computing or analog computing, these are all concepts that 
you know, we looked at 20, 30 years ago and just said, it doesn't make sense. You know, some people tried it and the economies weren't there, there, the market wasn't there, you know, it just didn't fit. Um, Well, now it fits. Now everything has evolved. Uh, So I think we're getting to a point where all of this is kind of converging. Um, And, you know, when I look at the, what, what we're going to be going through in the next 20, 30 years, it's phenomenal to think about what we're going to be capable of. Diamond semiconductors. Don't Jacking laugh. into your you know, People have, you know? diamond wafers are real. People have tried that. You know, you got silicon on insulator. You've got all kinds of different solutions. There are a lot of unique solutions that didn't have the economies of scale before, but they may in the future. Well, Jim, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, that was a uh, that was a bracing conversation. I have one question for you. Sure. Why don't we do this more often? <laughs> there are such great <laughs> topics for us to talk about. I mean, all these new markets and technologies. You know, we need to do more more of this futuristic pontificating. Come on. <laughs> I get to ask you questions Open next time. Invitation. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got I've got plenty of opinions, no knowledge, but I will formulate an opinion on anything. <laughs> Great, let's do it. <laughs> okay, Jim, talk to you later. Okay, thanks, Brian. That was Jim McGregor, co-founder of Tirius Research. And yes, there are indeed diamond semiconductors. One of the biggest proponents of that technology is Ican Semiconductor. If you'd like to learn more about the technology, search the site for our story on the company or visit the podcast webpage where you'll find a link to a recent interview of ACAN founder and chairman Adam Kahn. And that brings us to the conclusion of this episode of the Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. We'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Power Integrations. Visit this episode's webpage to find links to videos from Power Integrations explaining green energy, gallium nitride semiconductors, and other subjects associated with advanced power technology. Power Integrations, innovation in power conversion. This podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The weekly briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.